Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll take you to the Elmhurst Art Museum, which just opened two new exhibits that take inspiration from John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Theater critic Carrie Reed will join me to review a revival of a play that premiered in Chicago 20 years ago. Later in the show, I'll catch up with artist and retired bartender Sergio Maiora to talk about a new book that celebrates his poster art. And later, we'll get things poppin' while we belatedly recognize National Popcorn Day. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. John Coltrane's landmark 1965 album, A Love Supreme, is the inspiration for a lot of the creativity currently on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum. The West Suburban Museum just opened two new exhibits, one titled A Love Supreme, features works created by Chicago-based designer and educator Norman Teague. The exhibition resides in the museum's main gallery spaces. It's divided into four parts that correspond with the album's four movements, Acknowledgement, Resolution, Pursuance, and Psalm. An accompanying exhibit titled A Love Supreme McCormick House Reimagined features pieces from 30 Chicago-based artists in conversation with Mies van der Rohe's McCormick House. This was an opportunity to not just have a a solo show in the museum, but also have this sort of reimagination of iconic home by the infamous Mies van der Hol. And uh, think about the McCormick House in in a contemporary light with designers of color uh, sort of showing work inside of the space. This is Norman Teague. I caught up with him at the Elmhurst Art Museum as he was finalizing the installation of both exhibits. I was thinking about a love supreme as a an opportunity to think about like what might be a love supreme for one person or another as they work in a studio-based practice. What is the background noise that's happening while you're, while you're producing that chair or producing that amazing painting? What do you, what do you plan? So the artists here are providing a, a song that they might have in the background of their studio, which is really dope. And um, they're majority Chicago designers or artists um, that work in either clay or jewelry or sculpture or in some capacity, they are being creative, if not on a regular basis, as, as much as they can. Is John Coltrane's The Love Supreme what you're listening to when you're in the studio making stuff? It is. It's very much is. There's, there's something um, royal about it. There's something calming and close to perfect. <laughs> Which is, you know, what we're what we're all trying to do in life, right? Get somewhere closer. John Coltrane, um, he's trying to get closer to God.
Teague says he didn't grow up listening to jazz, but started to get into the genre as he matured, and he ended up connecting with Coltrane's music and personal story. So digging further into John Coltrane really allowed me to see just how much we had in common as, as black men, or, or just men growing up, going through the ups and downs of life. And, um, you know, he had some uh, very good changing moments, and then he had some struggles, some, some harder changing moments. And I, I struggled with a lot of that, also trying to be a, a family man, um, but also trying to do that off of a, a creative salary can be a struggle. So um, it was just uh, really almost satisfying to know that I wasn't the only one that was uh, struggling as a creative, had problems with drugs, uh, dealing with life as a, as a father, as, a, as an undereducated professional, all of these things that felt like we had things in common. And then on top of that, he, he made this really beautiful music. It changes people. It's, it's, it's a great set of music. John McKinnon is the executive director of the Elmhurst Art Museum. He says Teak's passion for a love supreme was apparent as soon as they started working on an idea for an exhibit. One thing that came out of it was his uh, affinity and, and his attachment to uh, John Coltrane and specifically a love supreme. And whether it's John Coltrane's life story or how he was very dedicated to his craft, like Norman became apparent that, hey, we can do this just about that particular album itself and the kind of searching that John Coltrane had uh, in those four tracks. And then we thought, well, but every other artist that will be in the McCormick House won't also be inspired by John Coltrane, won't always also be inspired by jazz. So what is their kind of cultural touchstone and what would then inspire them and let's explore that as a show about influence and uh, inspiration uh, so for norman the solo show in the galleries became about a love supreme and about him kind of bringing those ideas through and then in the house we really asked each artist who was your john coltrane or who was personally and culturally important to you whether it's music that's played and it directly influences your artwork, or its background in your studio, or some other kinds of uh, musical inspiration to your life. And the McCormick House then took shape as we then collected those stories from our designers, uh, textile artists, uh, furniture makers, and that sort of thing. And then in total, we were able to put all of that together to kind of reimagine the house. Um, and then their, their stories and influences you know, become apparent through the gallery guides. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. I caught up with acclaimed designer Norman Teague to talk about his John Coltrane-inspired works that are on display in the new exhibit A Love Supreme at the Elmhurst Art Museum. Because of Teague's background in furniture design, some of the works on display are functional, like a colorful piece that could work as a hat rack. These are pieces I've been playing with in my studio. I may think about Charles and Ray Eames. Uh, a lot of the work that they did sort of uh, exudes a lot of color and playfulness, but also has this function to them. So they're, uh, they're almost sculptural, um, but they also have a, a simplified function to them. 
we got to get a hat for that. <laughs> and then I started building and I was just like, nah, this is really good like this. Okay. And I had already turned this piece on the lathe, so this is solid. And then um, to have that all come together was really... And then this over here feels kind of culturally from the continent. Mm -hmm. And then this feels kind of Frank Lloyd Wright, the way these kind of cantilever away from the rest of the structure um, and have no function at all. <laughs> Sorry, Frank. <laughs> the exhibit's biggest piece might not seem practical, but it does have a hidden function. The large freestanding sculpture doubles as a musical instrument. This is radio, so people can't see it, but this, this large piece here. Yeah, this piece is, um, and I'm going to go back, not too far, but, you, you know, everybody saw Black Panther, Wakanda, and uh, the mother, she wears this, this headpiece. So this piece was kind of in resemblance and motivated conceptually by that, uh, but also thinking about an African roundhouse. This last sort of layer on top of that is that, you know, in an effort to get that sort of bent wood kind of feel that you're kind of looking for, we decided to strum this with guitar picks, the guitar tightener at, at, the, at the floor, and then this very tight string on a, on a half-inch dowel rod uh, that causes this tautness. And it's starting to almost sound like I'm describing a 10-foot harp <laughs> to some extent. Right. But the idea was that the house itself could become uh, this musical instrument. Uh, also thinking about jazz. So to be able to sort of gently walk around this and strum. And get these different sounds as you go. We hope to have a performance that might allow this to, uh, to be played oh, by yeah? okay. an, an artist who knows what the hell they're doing, because I don't. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of fun with trying. don't know enough about it. <laughs> no, that's good. The adjoining McCormick House is filled with 30 music-inspired pieces created by Chicago-based artists and designers. One piece surely to draw visitors' attention is a deconstructed red plastic Ikea chair that's been outfitted with brass instruments. It was made by Teague and Faux Wilson. Their inspiration? Rasan Roland Kirk's The Inflated Tear. The stuff in the McCormick House were those pieces that those artists and designers had already created, or they created once you put the the call out for these music-inspired pieces. Uh, most of the artists, um, I asked that they submit work that they already had. Um, the budget was really tight, so I didn't have enough money to ask an artist to make new work. Um, but submitting work that you already had, um, and it felt uh, sort of fitting to the to the direction of the show, then let's, let's see if we can work with that. I think maybe one or two artists made, maybe more. There's more artists. Some artists did go beyond and they made the pieces brand new. Um, and I'm so thankful to them for doing that, but I was hoping that they would just 
make it easy on themselves. But the pieces are really beautiful and fitting. And, and so, yeah, I look forward to um, the smiles on their faces when they see everything in one room together. Teague is hoping visitors who come see the exhibit walk away with some new connections. Symbolism has a lot to do with it. Spirituality, function. There's a level of joy that I'm hoping comes, comes with it. There's a level of education. Hopefully somebody walks away and a story's been told and they're like, ah, I get it now. Mm-hmm. Or they, they read about an artist or, or maybe even meet the artist, you know, or buy something from the artist and, and learn more about these narratives and, and see more of their bodies of work. But I think it's, for me, it acts, uh, sh- exhibitions act as a way of uh, bringing people closer together, sort of inviting them into a space where their guard is down and they they're uh, open to learning and they find out that somebody, I don't know, somebody loves Tupac Shakur as much as they do. Somebody learns that they grew up in the same neighborhood. You know, all these amazing possibilities um, are opened up and there's, yeah, 35 artists. So that means that there's 35 possibilities that somebody else might have something in common with somebody else. That celebrated designer Norman Teague. A Love Supreme and the accompanying exhibit A Love Supreme McCormick House Reimagined will be on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum through April 28th. Visitors are encouraged to bring their phones and headphones. There are QR codes throughout the exhibit that offer links to the music that inspired the works. You can find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the show every Sunday right here on WDCB, make sure to check out theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features like the one you just heard available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely is theater critic Carrie Reed. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Jonathan Abarbanel, our other dueling critic, is out on assignment this weekend. He'll be back uh, in a couple weeks. Lots to talk about this week, though. Curious Theater Branch is celebrating its 35th anniversary season with a revival of a production that premiered 20 years ago. Hit Me Like a Flower. Written and directed by Bo O'Reilly, one of the theater's founding members. And I'm not sure I can accurately describe the, the premise <laughs> here, so I'll, I'll leave that uh, to you, Carrie. What's, what's the setup? Well, the setup is that this all takes place in a small town. I don't know how many of our uh, listeners are familiar with Curious Theater Branch or Bo O'Reilly. They're sort of the, the standard bearers for a long time for fringe theater, alternative theater, whatever you know phrase we want to use. Among other things, they've been producing the Rhinoceros Theater Festival, affectionately known as Rhino Fest, which is the longest-running fringe festival in Chicago. That'll be taking place later this spring. Um, and it's primarily been 
in many ways, a writer's theater. It was founded by uh, Bo O'Reilly, Jenny Magnus, and Jenny's brother, Bryn Magnus, who are all very prolific playwrights. I don't think anyone is quite as prolific as Bo. He's probably written maybe about 80 plays, and I'm not exaggerating. I don't know that all of them have been produced, but he just writes an awful lot. Um, Be Like a Flower, which I missed the original production of, which was, as you mentioned, 20 years ago in 2003, takes place in a small town around a place called uh, Little Chicken Mountain, I believe it's called. And it's just sort of the intersecting lives of the people in this town. Um, I've been seeing Bo's work for a long time, for about 30 years now, and it only occurred to me while watching this play that a lot of what he's doing is perhaps in a slightly more absurdist vein uh, with what American writers like Thornton Wilder, who wrote Our Town, or Sherwood Anderson, who wrote Winesburg, Ohio, what they were doing, which is kind of giving a portrait of human lives by focusing on the particulars of one particular community. Um, sometimes Bo's work has been like artist colonies. Sometimes it's been families, you know, but he always seems to find little pockets of community where people are trying to communicate. Sometimes they're failing to communicate. Often it unfolds in a series of interconnected scenes, which is what takes place in Hit Me Like a Flower. The background is it, it was originally done in 2003, and it's set during the political and uh, street protests that were going on around the run-up to the Iraq War uh, 20 years ago. So one of the characters is very much against the war. We see him, very seldom do we see him on stage without a protest sign in his hand. But it's not really a political play in that sense. I think that the politics are a part of what's woven through it, but it's really about how do these people try to communicate with each other? How do they fail to communicate with each other? Oh, uh, Bo, who directed the piece, also appears as a writer, uh, a writer slash bus driver, a writer who is finally on the verge of perhaps achieving bestseller status, only to find, first of all, that the young man who's into war protests is totally deriding his, you know, his novel as not being political enough, not being engaged with what's actually going on in the world. And for the writer, he says, but, you know, I write about family, loss, and the dislocation of self. And those are his interests. And I think that's also a pretty good statement or summary of what Bo O'Reilly has written about over the years. He comes from a very large family himself. His father, James O'Reilly, was the longtime artistic director of Body Politic Theater, which is one of the most uh, important and fundamental off-loop theaters of the 70s and 80s. And I think he was also one of the founders of Court Theater, an early uh, you know, artistic director there. So a lot of what he writes about is about these, these family connections, whether they're families of affinity or literal families. It's a little hard to give a precise of the plot, but it, it takes place in this town where there's constant rainfall, so you get a sense that it's something a little otherworldly might be happening, the rainfall here is represented very simply by actors tugging on strings, and then buckets of confetti will sort of empty down over the stage. I think in the original production I heard they used actual water, so I'm kind of glad they didn't do that this time, because as cold as it is, I'd be very afraid of the actors getting that wet. So there's a sense that this is a place that's both kind of mundane and slightly a little off-kilter. But I found myself really enjoying this play. I think that it, there's a deep humanity to it. I think one of the things I like about Bo as a, as a writer is that he's not judging his characters. He's not making them mouthpieces, even when perhaps uh, Saul, who's the young student who is, you know, protesting and urging for people to be more overt in their intentions and in their 
in their writings and in their actions about being against the war, even when he's pressured to do that, um, I don't feel that Bo O'Reilly is a writer who's going to come out and make an overt political statement. He isn't going to make an overt prescriptive sense of uh, this is what you should be doing with your life. He just likes, I, I think he really likes his characters, and I think that's a key for any playwright. The more they like the characters, the more, and, and doesn't mean that you're excusing their foibles. It doesn't mean you're, you know, holding them up. It, quite the opposite. These are all very flawed characters, but they're all really trying. You know, they're all just like the rest of us. They're out there. They're trying to connect. One of the characters who has been battling mental illness likes to dress up like a bear and go and harass people up on the mountain. We're not sure why, you know, but even he finds people who start to try to understand him and, and sympathize with, with his plight. So I'm not sure if I'm helping clarify anything at all for you or our listeners. But he really is one of those playwrights, I think, you just sort of sink into his world, you know, and it starts making sense. It sort of shows you how to watch it as you start watching it. He doesn't necessarily give you a lot of background. You pick up bits and pieces of these people's lives from the way they talk to each other. You figure out their relationships from things they say. So you really kind of feel like you're just kind of dropped in as an observer to this odd little town where these things are happening, and yet they are profound. You know, they, they, they matter. We may not know these people. They may not be famous. They may not be even particularly, you know, effective. As we sadly know, the, the protests against the Iraq war didn't end that war, didn't, you know, didn't seem to have an effect on the fact that we did eventually, you know, ramp up operations there for many, many years, but we were we admire the way that they're trying to find each other in this world. Um, the title, I should mention, Hit Me Like a Flower, comes from uh, a lyric from the song Vicious by Lou Reed, which was on uh, Transformer, which I believe came out in 1972. I think it was Lou Reed's second album after leaving the Velvet Underground, or after the dissolution of the Velvet Underground. And I read somewhere that the title, you know, that lyric hit me like a flower from Vicious. And we hear several versions of it, you know, recorded by different people who have worked with Curious Theater Branch over the years. So there's kind of a fun little soundtrack playing throughout the show. But Lou Reed said that he came up with the lyric hit me like a flower because Andy Warhol had told him, yeah, you should write a song called Vicious. And Lou Reed was like, well, what, what? Kind of like asking Andy Warhol, what is your idea of this? He goes, you know, if you go up and you hit somebody with a flower. <laughs> you know? So I kind of think that works for this. I mean, it's not directly referenced in the play, but it's the idea that, yeah, some of these people are, you know, they're, they're they, as I said, they have their faults. They're falling short, perhaps even of their own expectations, but they're not vicious and really. And I mean, there's some physical violence, but not, not anything that feels realistic or cold, or um, or unearned, let's say. And by the end of the play, when everybody's kind of, you know, we've seen them in sort of two-character, three-character scenes. There aren't a whole lot of, you know, there's only really, as I can recall, the last scene where all the characters, and there's about, um, yeah, all nine characters finally kind of come together with a final resolution that sort of ties ties everything together pretty well. So, Yes, it's not it's not main it's not mainstream whatever that might mean. <laughs> it's not strictly realist, but also it's not you know, it's pretty straightforward. I would say the aesthetic of Curious Theater Branch has always been kind of that poor theater thing where it's like we don't spend a lot of money on props and sets and costumes. That's why I said, you know, the confetti depicting the rain is probably the biggest effect. Otherwise, it's just a few chairs. The lighting is fairly minimalist. Uh they do have this great soundtrack that I referenced. 
And they really do come down to the stories, the words, and the way that people engage with each other. So if you like that kind of thing, then I think <laughs> I just sounds like I'm saying, then this is the kind of thing you like. <laughs> but I do think, you know, and it's actually fairly approachable. I think it's, um, if you've not seen any of Curie Theater Branch's work, this might be a nice one to take in. It's at a very small space called Facility Theater, but a very nicely done space. It's a new storefront company um, that just finished renovations. They've been doing some things there for the last couple of years, but they finished their renovations uh, this past fall, I believe, or past summer. So, um, yeah. So if you're if you're making a trek, if you're interested in a trek out to Humboldt Park, then this is definitely uh, a show well worth your time, I would say. And if you've never seen any of, of Curious Theater Branch's work, I would also say put Rhino Fest on your schedule. Uh, I think it's opening in May, but I'm not positive on that. But if you go to their their website. Um, you'll be able to get all the information on that as well. It, they've really been the standard bearers for helping new artists, emerging artists, new plays for, you know, as you mentioned, Gary, 35 years, and I think that's something to be lauded. Yeah. I know you can't speak for a curious theater branch, but just your opinion, why do you think the, the company is reviving Hit Me Like a Flower now, 20 years later? And, you know, I don't know. I think, actually, I don't think it's a deliberate like in response to, say, the protests over, uh, you know, the, the war in Gaza. I think that um, they had been looking at doing, from a program note, Bo had mentioned they were planning on doing another show. Some of the actors for that weren't available. And so he just kind of was looking through, you know, as I mentioned, he has a very, pretty vast, you know, backlog, and he just thought, well, maybe this is one I'll revisit. Um, and I'm glad he did, since I didn't get a chance to see it, you know, the first time around. So, Any standout performances from the cast? Yeah, you know, I will say, I mean, all, Bo himself is always very good at, you know, as an interpreter of his own words. Um, there are some lovely performances from, uh, one that I loved from is uh, Jaida Bhattacharya, who is one of the longtime um, Curious Theater Branch Ensemble members. She plays a bag lady named Mrs. Chester, who seems to have some friends who may or may not be imaginary, but she's sort of an emotional moral center for it, shall I say. You know, um, there's a lovely performance, too, by um, uh, Kristen Garrison as Jackie, who's a therapist. So that's kind of one of the recurring things. She's a, she's a therapist. Several of the people in the play are her patients. So some things get unfolded in this sort of therapy, these therapy sessions, you know, that she has. Um, but at the same time, she's also kind of wondering, how much am I actually helping people here? <laughs> you know, um, which is kind of part of the repetitive cycle of life, right? We tell the same stories to each other. We work through the same things. And maybe it helps. Maybe it salves the wounds a little bit. Or sometimes maybe it just keeps us in the same, you know, the same cycles. And I think maybe that's a little bit, too, of what is happening in this play. Um but these are people who really do want to connect. They really do want to have their voices heard. And I think that that's one of the things that makes it a very relatable, um, you know, a, a relatable piece of work. Um, it's about two hours with an intermission. Um, to my mind, Bo, who also directed it, has done a fine job of just, you know, moving it along, making these scene transitions. As I said, it's very simple because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of set. There's just these sorts of chairs that roll on and off. Um, so it, it, it moves pretty seamlessly in, in a way, in almost a dreamlike way, I think, because of the starkness of the staging itself. And it adds to the sense that we're in a place that's relatable, but maybe not quite fully real to us, right? Curious Theater Branch's revival of Hit Me Like a Flower is running through February 4th at 
Facility Theater on California Avenue in Chicago. Carrie, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Gary. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. A new hardcover book is putting a spotlight on a small slice of Chicago nightlife and outsider art history. Just a few blocks from Steppenwolf Theater, hidden off the beaten path of Lincoln Park's many restaurants and retail outlets, it's Weed's Tavern. Today it's more of a sports craft beer type of spot, but for a period between the mid-80s and early 2010s, it was a true melting pot. Weeds hosted weekly poetry and jazz nights, underwear hung from the ceiling, incense was likely burning, and people from all over the city would drink together. The man at the center of it all was Sergio Maiora. The bartender slash artist was the ringmaster of sorts for the nightly party that took place at Weeds. Rewind back to the 80s as the neighborhood around North Avenue and Halstead changed, Maiora took it upon himself to try to bring in customers. So he started making collage posters to promote the tavern. And they worked. New clientele started coming in, and a growing number of people started taking interest in Mayor's vibrant and sometimes brash posters. Fast forward several decades, Chicago-based Trope has published Weed's Tavern, poster art by Sergio Mayora. The 96-page hardcover book features images of over 40 of Mayora's posters, text by celebrated Chicago journalist David Hoekstra, and a foreword written by Academy Award-nominated actor Michael Shannon. Intrigued by the posters and this piece of Chicago history, I caught up with Mayora to talk about the new book, his creative approach, and what it was like spending his nights and early mornings behind a bar. I don't know what you want to know, bro, but I can't tell you, I can't tell you, there's a lot of stuff that just can't, you just can't, you just can't, I mean, none of it will go on radio, that's for sure. You know, okay. it'll be, forget that, you guys will take that off right off the bat. Okay. Hell yeah. Oh yeah, I should definitely mention Mayora is a character, in the best sense. A true original who isn't afraid to say what's on his mind. Here's our heavily edited conversation. When did you start making posters? Uh, it was in the 80s. In the early 80s, but I don't know exactly when. Uh, there was no business here for a while, for a lot of reasons. I said, well, the, I guess we got no money for advertisement, so, you know, got to do something. So when I would go to the Old Town Ale House on a Wheeling and North Avenue, just in, in Old Town over there, I would see posters up there and people advertising plays and whatever, you know. So I did a poster, you know, what I thought was a poster, to advertise the bar. That started that, and that's how I started making the posters. And... The first one to notice the posters as far as media was uh, Marla Donato from the Tribune. And then she came over and she wanted to know who did it. I said, me, blah, 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 you know, and she's seen them here in different construction sites, on town, everywhere else. I put them everywhere. In those days, it was legal to do that. Yeah. Light posts and everything else. And so then uh, she did a story on them and she took me up to the towers, the, the Tribune Towers. The, the story came out and it was nice. You know, she said nice things and everything else, pretty cool. After that article came out, did you start getting more attention? Nah. No. No, not for the posters. I got, I got attention for the posters from the bar, but not because I made them. You know? uh, that came later, like more people would come in and I would give them posters for free. Anything you give somebody for free, they like. Yeah. You know? 
You know, and, and, and so if they would come, like, especially, I mean, I would give everybody posters for free. When I knew people came in from out of town, all right, and they happened to come here because they may have heard of or whatever, you know, or, or, or if they were from out of country, I would give them like five or ten different posters, and I would have them, I would have them here, you know, set up already just in case. Yeah. And, and they freaked out, you know, they would freak out. And I would tell them, you take it back to where you go and tell them when you come to Chicago, whoever it is, come over here. And later on I found out some of these people actually framed them and put them in their living rooms and stuff like that, you know. So it was pretty cool when I found that out. It took a while, but we, we did start getting people from other places, you know, from like other states, and, and they would come because of the posters. So what would inspire the, the posters? How, what was the creation process like? Were you taking things from current events or your personal life? There's a lot of things going, a lot of things, but one, one of the things is uh, I knew that you had to get, I knew you had to get attention first before you get, you just can't have information. You gotta get them there first. Right. So if they, if they, cause there's thousands of posters. If they just walk by, you know, they're used to seeing posters. You gotta get the attention first, and then you can put what you want. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of personal stuff in there, but there's even some codes that people ain't gonna find out until they go over them over and over and over. You ever see a movie called They Live? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Remember they put the glasses on, on yeah. and he sees that, you know, yeah. take the glass off, you see what you see, that's what it says, but if you take the, put the glasses on, then you see what it really means and stuff. That's a lot of the post. Would you cut things out of magazines? Or? I cut things out of magazines, uh, wherever I find them. You got to cut the image up, you know, because you can't just use the image, you know, or else it's kind of, I think it's illegal or something. And yeah, yeah, that's what I did, and, you know, because I used what I could. You had to figure it out. I don't know how to explain the, the working of uh, technically how, I don't have the words to. It's like your creative process, yeah, but yeah. just on like a. I mean, even if someone was watching me do it, you still wouldn't know what, what's going on in my head. And, I, and, I, and you know, you know, you know how you, you got stuff coming in your head and all of a sudden you, you forget about it, it's, you know, it's done, it's gone. Yeah. You know, so that's a lot of stuff like that, but I don't want to get conceited, but the fact of the matter is, I think people should, these uh, designers and stuff, and I think it's happened actually a little bit, I think they should check out some of these posters and, 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 and see how they can, you know, you want to advertise your business, you want to advertise this, yeah. you know, it, it, try some of this. Yeah. Teach a marketing class? about our dad but you know <laughs> so how many posters say it like let's go back okay to the 80s and 90s how many posters uh, are you making i know i lost at least 80 posters in a cab and there was a fire at one of my houses one, one, of, the, one of the apartments i lived on the second floor third floor in the basement i had a bunch of posters i had about 60 down there those got completely ruined uh, the fire and everything else so they're gone so how many do you think you ever made close to 300 almost so you would take the original and then go to like a print shop? I'd go to Kinko's when Kinko's was Kinko's. And when they had good machines and they were simple to use, for idiots like me. And, uh, and yeah, and uh, that's what I would do. I'd go over there and uh, yeah, pay them the bucks and you know, do, do the posters in black and white. And then you know, once, once I figured out the color stuff, then I, I, was like, I was like amazed. I said, yeah, color, 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 yeah, hell yeah. yeah. And they had to be 1117s. So that's what I always did because I was the 1117s. They were bigger, you know. People started coming here and they knew your work. But, but they didn't just come here for the posters. First of all, I don't care how many posters you got. I don't care how decorated, <laughs> I don't care what you got. If you ain't selling no liquor, they ain't gonna come here. You know, people come to drink. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. I'm talking with artist slash poet slash retired bartender Sergio Mayora about his days working at Weed's Tavern in the Lincoln Park neighborhood and the new book that features the posters he created to promote the bar. Let's talk about 
than weeds during the heyday for people that maybe never made it around here in in the 80s and 90s what was it like depends because weeds has been through many different changes not just one or two like the people say and just like the neighborhood's been through many many changes one thing when you came here you couldn't be here too long without being a friend of somebody sooner or later I mean, it just happens. I, I've been to bars where it says outside, friendliest bar in the world, and they ain't making no friends in that bar. This place generally was very, very friendly. And you walked in, you know, you, you, you most likely will get a shot of tequila for free, even though you don't know why, and then they, they weren't expecting that at all. So no bar did that, no bar did any of that. Yeah. So they were, it was very, right off the bat, it was something different. Yeah, that's besides the Serapis on the bar, and the candles and the incense, and you know, yeah. and so there's automatically a lot of stuff that was different. Mondays there would be a poetry Monday night. Was, Monday night was poetry. Gregorio Gomez himself, the one that started it, was Bob Rubnick. He came in here with long hair, kind of frizzy, and he starts telling me about this poetry thing and stuff and blah blah blah. And that he goes to different cities and starts poetry at different bars and this that. He's been doing this for a long time, and. Uh, he went to do it here. I go, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember I just exactly what I said. I said, do anything you want, but don't take your clothes off. And he goes, okay, no problem. <laughs> and that's how the poetry started. And once he got it started, he left after a while and left uh, Mark Smith in, in charge. So Mark Smith ran it for not too long. And then one day I was here and I was, you know, opening up the barn. And they're outside. I was a little late. I was like half hour, whatever, late. And Mike Smith is pretty pissed off. He's mad as hell. No, oh, man, you're late, my brother. You, you're irresponsible and everything else. You know, I got a hangover and a half. I'm opening up the bar. And I say, I know, I know. I kept saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. I got in here, you know, again, serving people. Every day. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then finally, all of a sudden, he goes, you know what? Forget this. I ain't doing this, blah, blah, blah. He got mad and he left. So one of the guys that was here was Gregorio Gomez. I said, Gregorio, why don't you do it? He goes, I can't run this. I can't. I go, what do you mean you can't? You take the names and you introduce them. Give me a break. What do you, what, what, what's the problem here? He goes, ah. Oh. So he did it, and he was the worst host in the world. The worst. I mean, Jesus Christ. But, but after like a month or two months, he got better and better and better, and he became the best host that I've ever seen doing anything. Yeah. Anything. He, he, was, he was great. He had it down packed, and he was funny. He was good. It was like a whole act on, on himself. You know, it was like great. It was, it was, it was a beautiful thing. And you had to be here to see it, and uh, sometimes there was magic. Sometimes he would pull out magic. It was great. Thursday nights would be Thursday jazz. Thursday night was Mr. John Bainey himself. He ran the band. It was John Bainey, Carl Lukov, George Bean, Barrett Dean, uh, uh, Rusty Jones, uh, George Bean on trumpet, uh, Carl Wright on harmonica, and Carl Lukov on vibes, and Bobby Roberts on lead guitar, and little John Bainey, uh, John Benny just recently passed away. Almost everybody's dead except the only one living actually, besides me, because I, I sang with them sometimes, is uh, Martin Benny, uh John Benny's son. So he's still living. I didn't know nothing about no jazz. I didn't know nothing, okay? But I knew that John Benny played this thing called jazz and stuff, and he would go to the ale house, sit there and drink, and I'd go to the ale house, sit there and drink. He would talk to me in time, I would listen and stuff. So I go, look, why don't you come to Weeds you know, and do, do some of that jazz? You know, then, believe it or not, I was trying to get this place some, some kind of sophistication. <laughs> he, he would actually say, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, Serge. I'll be there Thursday. Well, what happened was he did that for two years and never showed up. Off and on, after two years, one day he shows up with the band. You know, 
I, I just about had a heart attack and fainted, you know. And then when he played, I go, wow, that was that was, that was something, you know. Yeah. And I liked it, and the people liked it. Little by little, it was more and more, more and more people, you know. It was it was very very good, and he did that every Thursday for 14 years. After that, he never played. They never played anywhere that long, and it was it was great. These are seasoned musicians. They were older seasoned. They were great. They were very very great. Different types of people here for like the different nights, like the people that came for jazz. That, that's a good question because, yeah, you know, you figure that would happen, and it's true, it did. But the fact of the matter is, it bled because people want to be here anyway, so they would come to the days that they normally wouldn't have came, and little by little, you see. You know, almost everybody you know, all the time. You know, you know, you see a lot of familiar faces, and you see a lot of new faces. And, you know, they, and they would bring people. They'd want to show them. They want to show them, you know, the difference. And there was a difference. I, to me, it wasn't different. But you know, at, once you get away from it, you, you know, you get away from the forest. You can see the trees, whatever the hell you call that. Yeah. And I did see a lot of people who, you know, I don't know how to explain this. I'm gonna get this wrong. Everyone's gonna kill me, but who needed some kind of spiritual something in their lives, some kind of something. They were missing something. I knew it because I see them when they walk in and stuff, and you know, there's something missing, and they weren't going to get it at the firm bars, and they weren't going to get it wherever they were going. You know? For one reason or another, they got it here. And I could see when they did. I could, I could see it. You know, I could see it. I could feel it. And, and we knew. It was a good thing. How did the book come about? The book came about because Mr. Hoekstra himself I was at a book signing party for his uh, book. One, I forgot the name of it. Uh, he told me that he's going to write a story for uh, the new city. Uh, he's going to write a story about weeds and da da da, and that uh, he's going to see. He said that that's the seed to to put out there to see if someone once they read the story, uh, they might bite and, and decide, hey, let's write a book. Okay. Okay. That's what he, he he goes. This is the way it's done, Serge. I don't know what he's talking about. And, you know, I, I understand what he's talking about, but who knows what the hell. And so I go, okay, okay, okay. Then story comes out, right? Then uh, Dave told me about Troop, uh, about this publishing company, and that, that they want to make a book, you know? Basically, I got introduced and stuff and everything, and I really don't know what's going on, you know? All I know is that there's, they want to make a book, you know, and Dave wants to make a book, and blah, blah, blah. And he's gonna use uh, some of the story if he gets permission from the New City people to put in the book. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, I got, uh, I asked, uh, uh, Mike Shannon, if he could do the what they call forward, yeah, yeah, and he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's you know he's a good friend. He's he's a good guy, and uh, so yeah. And then uh, anyway, from there, you know, the the process of, of of having the book, you know, contract or whatever the hell, we did that, and he, and and it came out, and, and you know, the book looks great, you know, it looks good, and 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 they were very. But I always heard that the book companies today are worse than the music companies were for musicians in the, like the 50s and 40s and 60s when they would just steal them and everything else and you know treat them bad right. here here's a couple bucks and then boom you know yeah. but troop has been very very good they've been very very good been very responsive sam and michelle the marketing direct i mean they, they do good they they treat you good they treat you good you know you gotta sell a lot of books but they treat you good did you help like select which posters would be in the book no i didn't i didn't i didn't, I didn't get to do that they selected that they had a 120 posters and they selected 30 and they put them in there, and 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 it looks good. I mean, it looks good. I mean, it, what people don't realize is it took a, it takes a while to make the poster. You make one a week, and they think you you know you worked on that a couple of days. You're working on that sucker every day. Looking at this one, invasion of the weed persons. Like, yeah, I could see that one yeah, taking a while. I wanted to get. I wanted the people know to be identified from the bar, 
as weed people because we're from weeds. Yeah, yeah. You know, of course, there are people, oh, marijuana, but this is before marijuana was legal, right? right? You know, so it was like, you know, oh, 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 you know, no, that wasn't it, you know? And uh, so then Dave Hoekstra wrote a story called The Invasion of the Weed People, which kind of like was funny and, and, and you know, it, it helped. Uh, the yuppies weren't yuppies no more. They could come in here and become weed people. So they didn't have to worry about being yuppies, you know, and this and that didn't have to be this, and everybody else didn't have to be this. You could be just weed person. Any hopes for what people take away from the book? What I hope is that uh, the people that were here, if they get the book, I hope it gives them good memories. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. I'm positive. I hope Hoekstra gets happy, <laughs> happier than he already is. I hope uh, Michael Shannon's happy. I hope Michelle, the marketing workman, is happy. I hope Mr. Sam, the troop publishing president, is happy. I hope everybody's happy, because then maybe I might get happy. And I hope during the, during the book signing party that some of those people show up and stuff. So I can even thank, you know, personally thank them, you know, loud on a microphone, you know, so, and then maybe have them go up there and talk too. You see book signing party, signing uh, events, and yeah. you see the guy there sitting down signing a book. Yeah. Sometimes, I, I've never seen that except when i seen Dave. Besides that, I've always seen that on TV reenacted, okay. you know. Yeah. So I'm thinking, Forget that. Uh, that's not what I want. What are you gonna do? I want a party. I want. I want. I want somebody to remember. I want it to be an event. Okay. You know, some kind of gigantic local event, worldwide local event. That's what I call it. You know, and I want music. I want speeches. I want dedications. I want awards. I want other people to be happy. I want smiles everywhere. You know. Well, Sergio, I love the book, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a pleasure to be you talking to me while I talk to you back. Yes, thank you very much. I'm a real wild one, wild one, wild one, wild one. That's Sergio Maiora. His collage posters are celebrated in the new book, Weed's Tavern, poster art by Sergio Maiora. You can find more info about the book at trope.com. And you can check out the current version of Weed's Tavern, still in the Maiora family. It's in the Lincoln Park neighborhood near North Avenue and Halstead at 1555 North Dayton Street. You're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. This past Friday was National Popcorn Day. While Garrett's gets a lot of attention, there's a small shop in the western suburbs that's been serving up popcorn to lines of hungry customers for over 100 years. This is the unmistakable sound of corn being popped. This is the way it's been done for a hundred years at the little popcorn store in downtown Wheaton. And for the past ten decades, people from all over have come to the store to buy fresh popcorn. There's always someone stopping going, oh my, I mean people just in line, my grandparents brought me here and now I bring my kids or I'm bringing my kids. Donna Wakefield is the owner of the little popcorn store. The small shop is over a century old. When I call it small, it's because the storefront is literally the width of a doorway. And for folks who have never been to downtown Wheaton, it's, uh, is it four feet wide? Four feet wide and 64 feet long. It is literally just a doorway. What's the, the official address is even kind of? 111 and one quarter Front Street. Yeah, we don't even get a whole address. (laughs) I caught up with Wakefield to learn more about the shop's history and the key to making popcorn that keeps customers coming back. I grew up in Wheaton as well and have my own childhood memories. The origins, the very beginnings, go back to a gentleman named E. Claire Brown, and he had this idea to set up a popcorn shop. He um, opened the popcorn store. He actually opened it on January 3rd, 
1921, which I'm always amazed at. Why, why would you open something like this in January and not in the summer? But he did. He was further down the street, and he moved here in 1935 for more room. <laughs> in my mind, I have, this is something I don't know, but in my mind, it's deeper we're, because we are 64 feet long. Okay. I was reading this old newspaper account from the 50s that people from all over the Chicago area would come just to try his popcorn. Yes, there were people who would come in and tell me that in the 30s and 40s, it was a date, a Sunday afternoon date destination. After church, they would drive out here to get popcorn on a date. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and people just come all over. We had a woman in yesterday from England who came, had to come see the popcorn store. Oh, wow. We're on a lot of the TripAdvisor and all those sites that tell you things to see. Right. Since I grew up in Wheaton, I take it for granted, but it is exactly. this unique thing that a lot of these types of shops have disappeared. We have the best support of our customers. You know, we're sitting right outside the store right now, and if you turn around and look, we have a line waiting to get in. And we have, had, we have a line like that year round. When it was like five degrees outside, we had people waiting to get in. Yeah. I just, the town supports us, people come from all over. What is it about, maybe you keep it a secret, but is there something special about the popcorn? We use a white popcorn, so it's a smaller kernel, it's a little sweeter and it's tenderer than the typical yellow popcorn you would buy at the grocery store or at the movie theater. Um, and then we use 100% vegetable oil. No butter flavor, no flavors at all. It's white popcorn cooked in oil, lightly salted. And that's, that's, it. that's it. I was just in there and uh, I could hear it popping. So is it constantly being made? Not constantly, usually. We are right now because we have a couple of um, big orders that are going out. So we have somebody doing a softball tournament this weekend. So they wanted 400 bags of popcorn. Oh, wow. So that keeps us on our toes. Yeah. Um, different events that different groups have, they order popcorn for. So we, there are days we don't stop popping and then days where it's a little slower. But it's usually never more than 10 minutes that we go without popping. Oh, okay. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking to Donna Wakefield, the owner of the Little Popcorn Store in downtown Wheaton. The enterprise was started over a century ago by a man named E. Claire Brown in 1921. Then his daughter would take over the business, and when she was ready to retire, the Wakefield family stepped in. My family owned, my parents owned a restaurant where Graham's Chocolates and Ice Cream is now. Okay. It was called Front Street Junction. And they bought that in 1969 and were just always fascinated by this little place that was always had a line, was always busy. And when it became available, they decided to buy it. So we had two businesses on Front Street. Um, we closed the restaurant in 1986 when my parents became ill. So my brother and I um, co-owned, have co-owned the store since 1986, but it's been in my family since 1979. Your brother passed away a couple of years ago? Yes. He passed away um, in September of 19. Okay. And actually, I don't know if you want this, but today is his birthday. Oh. So we're getting a lot of little birthday messages on Facebook. That's nice. He knew everyone in town. Everyone knew him. 
And I was on your website, and I see we're sitting at the table that's in memory of your brother, Bill Wakefield. Yes, this association did this for him, because when they redid, we have a plaza now outside the store with tables and chairs, and you can probably hear in the background the water fountain, um, and a fireplace, which is probably going today. Is it on while it's... Yeah, it goes all summer, even though it's, you know, 90 degrees. Um, but his one comment was he really wanted people to be able to sit out here and play chess or checkers, play games out here. So um, in dedication to him, they, they identified one of the tables with a, a chess checkers board and his name on it. And then we have the pieces in the store. Okay. And people come and ask for them, and they'll sit out here and play for a while and return the pieces. So it's a nice little community. So did you ever have a thought, like maybe you, you didn't want to continue? No. And I, that was one of the things I promised him, that I would keep it going. And that I would make sure we did something for our 100th anniversary. So I think that's why I've done so much for our 100th anniversary, was, in, was for him. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it was one headline that was put out, is the popcorn store for sale? And if you read the article, it says no, that I'm taking over. But a lot of people just read the headline. So the city proclaimed a day for us, and that was uh, January 17th. You know, we have a display above where we um, count candy and pop popcorn above the... Yes, we still use the original cash register, which is a muffin tin. Um, (laughs) But above there, we have original equipment that... Email and Irma used the the oil pin, tin, the an original popper. Our poppers are all hand crank, made just for us. Actually, we we have the pieces we build them. There's a definite sense of nostalgia inside the little popcorn store. Penny candy lines one side of the narrow alleyway as customers make their way to the cashier where they can order popcorn. Wakefield says she enjoys hearing about people's special connections to the store. One of her favorite stories involves a couple who met at the shop over six decades ago and return every year on the anniversary of that meeting. I've met one couple that actually met here when they were in high school 65 years ago. And they come back and celebrate every year on the day they met. They have their little anniversary to come to the popcorn store. Yeah, the birds are just Joe and, and... Jerry Bird are great people. The Little Popcorn Store has persevered through a lot over its 100 years, but in 2020 it faced a unique challenge when the COVID-19 pandemic erupted. We closed when everything closed. When we were able to open curbside, we started with just weekends, and we had the popcorn ready to go at the door so people could come to the door. We started on just weekends, and then we backed up, adding Friday, adding Thursday, adding Wednesday, to, until we were open every day. And just, again, the lines, the support, the positive comments were just, you know, really kept us going. Sure. So I think we've done okay. Yeah. You know, we have. I do, because of the way I do things now, and again, with my other life being a professor and a researcher I do a lot more with data Um, I monitor things and I know that we've had over 45,000 customers in the store so far this year okay is that an increase we don't know because we didn't count I think it's an increase 
And what amazes me with that 45,000 is we only let four people in at a time still because of, of COVID. As far as the future of the shop, maybe it'll be around 100 years from now. I don't see it going anywhere. Yeah, it's just going to keep going as is. I have made a few changes since I took over. I had the whole front redone for the 100th anniversary, freshen it up. We now take credit cards, which my brother never did. So that's the, the technology in me. I've added some technology. So a couple little things like that. Well, Donna, I really appreciate you taking time to, to talk with me. Thank you. Thanks for being interested in telling our story. That's Donna Wakefield. She's the owner of the Little Popcorn Store. It's located at 111 and a quarter Front Street in downtown Wheaton. Blinking, you might miss it. Just keep your eyes open for a bright red door. You can find more information at littlepopcornstore.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. little heat wave coming tomorrow. Temperatures in the 30s. It's going to feel great. Thanks for listening. Yeah.